This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call has joined a multi-state coalition opposing Texas's new abortion law. Earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four against blocking the law, which bans abortions after six weeks from taking effect. According to the Capital Times, Call is joining a coalition of 23 other attorney generals. That group is filing an amicus brief in federal court supporting the U.S. Department of Justice's challenge to the Texas law. Wisconsin's unemployment rate held steady at 3.9% for the fifth month in a row. As of August, the state was faring slightly better than the national unemployment rate, which stood at 5.2%. Those numbers come courtesy of the state's Department of Workforce Development. Interim UW System President and former Republican Governor Tommy Thompson underwent surgery today after a water skiing accident over the weekend. The Associated Press reports that the aquatic accident left Thompson with a torn bicep muscle. According to the UW spokesperson, Thompson is currently resting and recovering from the surgery. Two members of the U.S. House of Representatives are calling for an investigation into possible mistreatment of Afghan refugees at Wisconsin's Fort McCoy. That comes after the Wisconsin State Journal reported that many refugees at the camp have yet to receive new clothes and have experienced long waits to get food. In a letter to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Representatives Gwen Moore of Wisconsin and Ilan Omar of Minnesota requested an investigation into the base's living conditions. According to the Associated Press, Fort McCoy currently houses about 12,500 Afghan refugees. A city of Madison recycling truck caught fire earlier this month, possibly due to improperly disposed batteries. That's the second Madison recycling truck to catch fire this year. To prevent a third fire, the city of Madison's recycling division is asking folks to be careful with how they dispose of their batteries. Batteries do not belong in your city recycling cart. The city of Madison has two drop-off recycling centers that can dispose of old batteries, one on Sycamore Road and the other on West Badger Road. And a portion of East Johnson Street will be closed this coming Monday through late October. The street will be closed between North Street and North Lawn Avenue for a water main rehabilitation project, according to the city. And now, here are your daily COVID-19 news and numbers. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 2,110 cases. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin State Journal reports that staff and student quarantines in Madison School District are spiking. According to the district's data, 407 students, teacher, or staff were quarantined over the past 14 days, up from 106 quarantined as of September 8th. And in somewhat happier news, the Henry Vila Zoo will be holding a vaccine clinic to celebrate International Red Panda Day. The clinic will be from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. this Saturday and is open to those 12 and older. Those who get vaccinated at the clinic will be, will be able to visit the zoo's education pavilion where zoo workers will have animal ambassadors to see and interact with. 
And that's it for the headlines. But before we turn to more local news, we've got a special guest in the studio who wants to tell you something about the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. Hey there, fam. This is Kai Brito, WORT volunteer in the studio, here to ask you for your support during the first day of the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. You turn to WRT to keep you company throughout the day, and you turn to the local news to hear the voices of your friends, neighbors, elected officials, and community. But it takes a community and their financial support to make WORT a reality. We need you to show your support in a very real way by calling 608-256-2001 and pledging, or pledge online at wortfm.org. Thank you so much in advance. It makes a huge difference. Just $5 a month can already uh, make a lot of difference. I'll be back in just a bit to tell you more about our thank you gift options. But for now, back to Marcus and Stacy with the news. Wisconsin Republican legislatures are currently pushing a bill that would allow parents to opt students out of lessons on gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Democrats and social justice groups are expressing a litany of concerns with the bill from the psychological impact it could have on LGBT students to its ambiguity and legal repercussions. Our producer, Jonah Chester, takes us from here. The bill mandates that school districts tell parents about upcoming instruction related to sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or gender expression. It also allows parents to pull their students out of that instruction. The legislation was fast-tracked into the Assembly's Education Committee for a public hearing today after its introduction yesterday. It has no Democratic co-sponsors. Donna Roser, a Republican from Marshfield and one of the bill's co-sponsors, told the committee that the legislation was designed to protect family values. I believe that there are very subtle things that occur in public and charter schools that tend to normalize behaviors that are in conflict with some students' families' belief systems. Students are exposed to things, maybe at a very young age, in an attempt to undermine a family value uh, belief system. But Democrats and social justice groups have a number of concerns with the bill. Representative Sandy Pope, a Democrat from Mount Horeb, says the bill could be used to erase LGBT history, as a school district could construe those historical lessons as education on gender identity or sexual orientation. Pope used Harvey Milk, one of America's first openly gay elected officials, as an example, which prompted a question from Roser. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. Is that a real person? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not. Are you just using, are you just throwing that out no, as a, is a very real person? Okay. There is an exception allowing a teacher to refer to someone's sexual orientation. According to the committee's legislative council, anything beyond a reference would likely require parental notice. That exception also requires that the reference must provide, quote, necessary context, unquote, for whatever topic is being discussed. The exact definition of necessary context is not clarified in the bill. Representative Gary Hebel, a Democrat from Sun Prairie, says that ambiguity could potentially lead to lawsuits. What is necessary context? It, it, you see my problem with the, it, the enforcement of this then becomes subjective, and then we deal with litigation. And the last thing we should do as a legislature is encourage litigation. 
Heather Chun is a prevention and education specialist with Dane County's Rape Crisis Center. She told committee members that since the bill's introduction yesterday, she's heard from several concerned Madison students. I've had five LGBTQ plus students message and email me since since 24 hours ago when this was announced, scared that this will mean teachers will not give them full information if their parents decide it's not appropriate. Chun went on to say that the programming the bill seeks to limit is essential for students grappling with their identities. They learn they are not alone. They learn that they deserve to be alive. They get affirming and empowering language that feels right to them and their identities. Bluntly, this is suicide prevention. Giving all students age-appropriate access to this information is imperative. According to a 2019 study by the Trevor Project, an LGBT advocacy organization, LGBT kids are four times more likely to attempt suicide than their straight cisgender counterparts. Per that report, that disparity is likely caused by social stigma and discrimination. Although she didn't explicitly name the bill at hand, State Superintendent Jill Underly accused legislative Republicans of playing political games with students. In a press release, Underly wrote that, quote, Make no mistake, they know exactly what they are doing, using our children as pawns in a culture war. They will not win in the long term, but they will hurt our students, our educators, and our democratic principles in the process, unquote. The bill is formally opposed by Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and the Wisconsin School Social Workers Association. The Wisconsin Catholic Conference and Wisconsin Family Action testified in support of the bill today. The bill faces a near-certain veto from Governor Tony Evers, who's opposed similar pieces of Republican-authored legislation that have been floated this session. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We'll turn for a brief moment to Kai Brito in the studio to ask for your support. How's the pledge drive going, Kai? Yo, Marcus, Stacy. I think the pledge drive's going pretty well. Um, do we have any pledges? I think I see someone in here with a pledge. No? Yes? No? Is that a piece of paper for me? Yes! We do. No. Okay. That was not a pledge. But by donating to WORT, if you do call uh, 608-256-2001, you can help make independent journalism possible. Like that news report by Jonah Chester, our assistant news director. They're making a difference by enabling us to train the next generation of reporters and by helping us to bring the news to your ears. When you donate, you help make news like this possible. Call 608 256-2001 and donate or donate online at wort.org slash donate. A shawl that once belonged to Abraham Lincoln, Nazi daggers taken by U.S. soldiers during World War II, and a particularly historic bottle of Gugon, These are just some of the many historical curiosities that live in the State Archive Preservation Facility on Madison's east side. This week on Isthmus on Wart, producer Jonah Chester and Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan take a closer look at the facility's collection and what goes into preserving and cataloging Wisconsin's history. 
So you published a piece in this month's edition of Isthmus that's all about the Estate Historical Archives Preservation Facility. Now walk me through what is the preservation facility? What's their mission? Well, it's like kind of like a big fortress where they keep all of Wisconsin's historical objects and papers and all sorts of stuff. And it's right behind Mickey's Tavern, and there's like a ton of cameras behind it. It's it's semi-accessible to the public, but you can't just walk in there. Uh, it's a very secure facility, and yeah, it was... Um, it's part of our snapshot series where we kind of profile cool things that are in and around town. I went and got a got a look around, and it's pretty cool. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? It was a lot like that, but like a $147 million state-of-the-art version of that. I mean, I don't know how much yes. the one in Raiders of the Lost Ark was, but I always love that scene in the movie. Where like they pan up and there's yes. all the all the boxes full of weird stuff. So when you visited, what was what was the favorite object that you got to check out? Oh, I think uh, the more like they had just like cool refrigerators that were made in Madison, like in the fifties from Sub Zero, mm-hmm. right? There was uh, the you know the bombing of Sterling Hall. There was like a, a piece of the diesel engine of the of the van that was rented to do it, and then right across from it was like a spittoon from the state capitol. So there was, I mean, it's even hard. Uh, it's a little overwhelming to even describe because they had just you know hundreds of taxidermied animals. Like, just weird stuff like that. Like, things that uh, you could, um, maybe you wouldn't think of as, like, treasured historical objects, but are definitely part of Wisconsin history. Like, a big part of a silo in Butch Vig's, uh, like, drum set that he played in Viroqua. And all, all sorts of crazy stuff. And then, like, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of paper. <laughs> that are in boxes, you know. So you mentioned it was sort of pseudo open to the public. Why is it why is it that like I can't go over there right now and access it? Why are the preservationists hesitant to let people in? Well, they this is stuff that is old, mm-hmm. right? They don't want necessarily uh, you as a private individual <laughs> could go look something up if you were doing a research project yeah. and get like every letter that, you know, a platoon in Vietnam uh, wrote back uh, to their families potentially that might be at the historical archive or all of the s- Senator Feingold's um, documents from his 18 years in the in the Senate, stuff like that. So that's uh, it's uh, a lot of researchers go in there. They have a whole separate room for it. I mean, I it took him like two hours to explain like the HVAC system to me because it is, uh, you know, think about. Uh, what was there before, and that was kind of uh, this facility just opened in 2016. Before that, before this was built, and it took a long time for it to be built, um, like just the planning and the budgeting. But they had like, you know, a basement on Langdon had, you know, they were doing their best, and it was really just lucky that some of this stuff wasn't destroyed by a fire or a flood. And now, you know, this facility is sort of specifically designed to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen. Um, But it easily could have. I guess Chicago, like 100 years ago, you know, like lost a whole bunch of of their historical preservation objects and stuff because of just, you know, fires happening and stuff. But this, so it was impressive in that regard. And and it's probably the most, besides like the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., it's probably like the most, uh, probably like the nicest facility in the whole country for state archives. And there's everything you could think of. Nazi 
daggers that uh, which Wisconsin also lends soldiers, to the what like lends to the Raiders back, of the you know? Lost Ark thing. <laughs> yes, or like bomber jackets that people have like hand painted on the back of these bomber jackets, like all their targets that they hit. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I mean, and the people that work there, I mean, they they treat all these objects as like revered things, and they take it very seriously and feel very fortunate that they get to you know kind of interact with this history because every one of these weird objects or you know correspondence or anything like it there is a story behind it mm-hmm. and that's what they kept emphasizing to me so can you walk me through the, the history of the the preservation facility itself I know this was in the works at, at the legislature and in in the uh, state government for a few years before it finally came well, to fruition. four governors it was talked yeah. about for four governors before finally in 2013 uh, the like kind of the money was put to build it at what used to be kind of like, I think it like was a state, a small state building where they, mm-hmm. they, I don't know, they kept mail trucks or something. Probably not mail trucks, but they kept something. <laughs> Lawn mowers, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and then, but it is an, an imposing building and it's do- not exactly clear what it is. So I think that kind of living um, in that area, not quite in that area, but seeing that it's like, what the heck is this thing? Maybe because I went to school over there, and and all of a sudden there's this huge fortress essentially with a million cameras around. So it it was talked about for a really long time. 2013 during the Walker administration, it finally made it into the state budget. In 2017, they started like you know moving all of the Wisconsin Historical Society's, um, not all, but most of their collection in there, as well as the Department of Veterans Affairs, and also um, a lot of things from the state capitol, so the Department of Administration. Hmm. So you, you touched on it there a minute ago, but can you tell me more about the controls they have in place to be sure something like a fire doesn't break out or to be sure these materials are held sort of in their perfect state or perfect-ish state, I guess? There's just a lot of redundancies. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it. Everything is very controlled. Like, uh, it doesn't, um, there isn't like waters just in the pipes. They have things where water will come down, but it, it's not, you know, it has to be very bad fire. So I don't know so much about the fire suppression system, unfortunately, Jonah, but I know <laughs> it's good. But they have to have like a million of these heating and cooling units because one of these rooms, this huge room, has to be stored at 40 degrees because it has like nothing but film and microfiche and, and other things that would degrade otherwise. Photos like Silveroid, uh, you know, early photography, whatever those are, plates. So um, it was just it, it, everything is very intentionally built and there's backup systems and it, it, you know, it was very, you know, when you want to see a lot of historical objects and they're showing you the HVAC system for an hour and a half, you get a little, <laughs> you get a little bored by it. But I was impressed. You know, my, my dad works in a in HVAC. No, He'd find very that very cool. offensive. It's cool. No, it's not <laughs> offensive. It's just like I got I learned a lot about it and it basically is just a good system, a really good system. And how they do it? Backups. You know, that that seems to be a big, I don't know. You ask your dad about HVAC. It seems like if you got the, if you got the means, you, you install a good backup because stuff can happen and you don't want temperatures to fluctuate when there are archives. Yeah. When you got a bunch of old like, and highly yeah. flammable paper sitting around. No, you don't. Or how about this? Like uh, the, a, a, a change in the temperature very quickly, you know, that could ruin something. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, and there's facilities in this building for like, uh, you know, cleaning things up correctly. And like uh, there was one room. It was funny. They were like, I see that, you know, there, it looked like go- a bottle of goo gone. <laughs> and I asked like, they're using goo gone like to, you know, preserve. And he's like, no, actually, that is uh, a historical object itself. That is the goo gone used to clean up some of the uh, graffiti after the riots and 2020. They really, they don't miss anything. No, they, they got don't. it all. I was like, oh, so the goo god is a historical object. They're like, yes. Because I did make fun of them. Like, oh, you guys are just like goo-gawing, th- goo-gawing things? <laughs> so how, how did these things wind up in the <laughs> archives? Do the, do the preservationists have like pickers out there or like are they, are they running through the streets being like, this looks historic. Let's add it to the archives. Or what does that look like? I, I think a lot of it is donated. Like people, like there was a shawl that Abe Lincoln wore, right? And it was given to a black Canadian surgeon and his great grandson happened to live in Milwaukee. And he donated this shawl uh, to the Historical Society. But they are able to verify it. It was Lincoln's shawl. So I think that's a good example of how um, people, how things end up in the collection of both the Department of Veteran Affairs and the Wisconsin Historical Society. There was an old Wienermobile. I'm sure Oscar Mayer gave it to them. Mm -hmm. Which raises the question of who donated the goo gone. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for for joining me. Before I let you go, anything else you want to add about this this story? No, it was fun. Good fun read. read, Check it out at isthmus.com. Thanks for asking me about the HVAC system. It didn't make it into the article, but it was (laughs) fascinating. I, I can't understand why that got the cut. Uh, Dylan Brogan, reporter for Isthmus. You can check out his write-up, like you said, online on Isthmus.com or in the print version of yes. Isthmus on newsstands near you. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up. Transparency Talk teaches us how to request police department records We revisit how out-of-state companies put the squeeze on Wisconsin's mobile home communities. And Radio Chipstone goes to Object Study Heaven. But now we'll check in with Kai once again, and then we'll hear some headlines from around the world. Hey, thanks for that check-in, Marcus and Stacy. I think we're doing good here. We just heard stories about the gender identity bill and uh, a secret trove of historical artifacts uh, by reporters Dylan Brogan and Jonah Chester. And just in this first hour of the live local news, we know you love to hear about the current issues and topics powering the dialogue in our community and maybe some issues that aren't represented in mainstream media. That is what we can do. We want to inform you about where you live, but it takes a dedicated effort And that dedicated effort translates from time and money. And you can donate your time and effort and money at 608-256-2001 or at wortfm.org forward slash donate. This is a show produced by a volunteer team. Each day, we have an engineer, producer, hosts, reporters, and feature producers. And each day, we give you the news uh, it takes time and labor, but that's a labor of love, and uh, hopefully you can show your love through some financial support, because we need that to keep it going. You can donate that at 608-256-2001 or wortfm.org to make your donation to WORT. We'll be back in just a moment, but uh, make that call.
The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our producer, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. The topic this week, how to request police records. Now, quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by our open government wizard himself, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up this week? Jonah, I'm holding good. The sun's shining both outside and on government, so that's where we want to be. That is exactly where we want to be, and I'm really excited for today's uh, today's feature idea because I actually came up with this one. We are talking about records from law enforcement agencies. Now, we here at the WORT News Team file a lot of, of public information requests from uh, the Madison Police Department, amongst other police organizations. So this is something I have a little bit of experience in, and I'm looking forward to diving in and letting people know how they can get uh, information they want from your local police agencies. Let's let's go ahead and dive right in. Walk me through some of the most common records that people are typically interested in when it comes to law enforcement and criminal justice. Yeah, let's start at the local level with your police departments. Every city, village has one, towns have them. We're also talking about sheriff's departments here too. And the categories of records kind of break down into two different sections. One is records that relate to individual incidents. So something bad happens, the cops are called, and there's a report made about it. So what kind of records are involved there? Well, if it's a traffic report, car crash of some kind, there is a whole set of laws that deal with uniform traffic reports, and they are released quickly and cheaply. They're very easy to get. Uh, the vast majority of requests to police departments are actually for those, although a lot of those come from personal injury attorneys looking to send out mailers to people to hire their services. But if it's not a traffic report of some kind, then what you're probably looking for are the incident reports. Different police departments can have different names for this. Sometimes they're computerized uh, reports, sometimes they're not. But ask for incident reports from the incident you're interested in. And then finally, for individual incidents, now the days you might be interested in some body cam footage. That has become one of the quickest growing categories of record requests. And custodians around the state, especially in the bigger cities, are reporting that it's taking up a large amount of, of their time spent on records because when they produce body cam footage, somebody has to watch the whole thing, every minute of it, to see if there's anything that needs to be redacted. And this isn't a written record where you can kind of scan through quickly through a page and look for things that jump out that, that wouldn't be allowed. Uh, somebody literally has to watch everything. So what I recommend people do if they're interested in body cam footage to get them quicker and also to not bog down the, the, the system for other people making requests, try to make your request as narrow as you can. Uh, limited to the, the the period of time that you're most interested in and and be willing to work with custodians if they come back asking if there's something 
a particular portion of an incident you're most interested in seeing. So those were sort of specific cases, but you can request broader information from police organizations and police departments, correct? Yeah, you might be interested to start with with policies. What is the police department's policies on use of force? Most of them have them. Uh, by law now, if they're using body cams, they have to have uh, policies governing the use of when they're turned on, when they're turned off, how long they're kept, that sort of thing. So look for policies. People are often interested in personnel records of individual police officers. It's been in the news recently, thanks to a report from the Wisconsin Examiner about um, kind of trouble police officers who bounce around between different police departments and have long records of problems, but they keep getting hired. Generally speaking, routine personnel records are not available. So this is things like performance reviews and qualification exams, things like that you might not be able to get in most circumstances. But whenever there's an investigation into wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing, those records typically must be released. They can often be redacted. But if you ever get a denial that just says these are investigation records, we're not going to turn over any of them, that's a problem. Go talk to somebody. You might also want to know about reports that a police department is putting out. There might be reports on types of crimes and crime trends, broad reports about complaints against police or summaries of uses of force. And budgets and spending items fall into this category too. Those kind of are items of interest for all types of government entities. And finally, another request I see a lot of is communication. So you can request communication perhaps internally, although some of those are harder to get, but uh, anytime they are communicating with external people or agencies, uh, those records are much more able to be disclosed. Now let's look at one of the other wings of the law enforcement system, and that is jails and prisons. Now what information can I get from jails and prisons, which we should mention, you know, jails are run largely at a county level and prisons obviously are through the Department of Corrections, which is the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, and there are a lot more limitations in the incarceration sphere to talk about, and it'd be, take forever to go through them. But generally speaking, uh, particularly if inmates themselves are making requests or there's records that involve or raise safety concerns, there's a lot more types and kinds of records that can be withheld. So it's harder to get things like personnel information about individual corrections officers, internal incident reports, or internal communications doesn't mean you can't try, but you should expect some resistance in those realms. But on other things like broad policies and uh, broader reports and external communications, those get turned over just about the same as any other custodian of records would do. All right. We have unfortunately run out of time for this week's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by our open government wizard, Tom Kamenick. Tom, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks, Jenna. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Coming up, we'll hear a report on the exploitation of mobile home owners and a feature on the Willie Street Fair. But first, we're asking for your financial support during the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. And Kai Brito is in the studio to tell you more. Kai Brito here will also be at the Willie Street Fair, but right now, Thank you. I'm here to thank everyone who's donated this far in the pledge drive. 
For those of you that haven't donated yet, now is the time to hop on the phone and call one of our lovely phone answers at 608-256-2001 to pledge your support to the station. Or hop on the WRT website at wardfm.org and uh, pledge without hassle. But uh, I do have a question for you here. When is the last time you wanted to find out about an issue happening somewhere else in the country or the world? Maybe it was the Texas abortion ban, or maybe it was the Florida condo collapse. What did you do? If you're like me, you probably Googled it. And uh, what came up? Local newspapers, local to Florida, local to Texas. These local radio stations with local journalists who were on the ground and able to report the details out to the broader world. The local journalists were able to get the most powerful stories because they had already cultivated those relationships with the people living there as part of the community. WORT does the same thing. We are on the ground when news is happening. We cultivate relationships, and we pay attention to the local, which is increasingly hard to find when media outlets across the board are struggling. So support us now at 608-256-2001. We hate interrupting the news to ask for your support, but when you give, you are directly supporting local journalism. You're making sure we have the resources to train the next generation of audio reporters and storytellers. Um, and uh, thank you if you've already donated, but if you haven't, please make that call right now, 608-256-2001, or head online to wortfm.org. And now, back to Marcus and Stacy. For many rural Wisconsin communities, mobile homes offer an affordable housing option. But loopholes and flaws in Wisconsin's landlord-tenant laws place mobile home owners at a heightened risk of exploitation. In this archival interview, which originally aired in May, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Henry Redman, a reporter with Wisconsin Examiner. Earlier this year, Redman reported on the struggles of a Dane County mobile home community and what they illustrate about the issues facing mobile home owners around Wisconsin. So in your most recent piece, you take a look at the squeeze a private company is placing on a Dane County mobile home park and how that struggle is a lens into the issues facing Wisconsin's mobile home communities as a whole. So tell me tell me about the focus of your story, Blue Mounds Mobile Home Park and the strained relationship its community members have with the owner, Impact Communities. Yeah, so the Blue Mounds Mobile Home Community, it's sort of tucked in the hills by Blue Mountain State Park. For a long time, the community was owned by a local owner, and then it was sold before he died in 2018 and eventually passed along to this company based in Colorado called Impact Communities, and they own mobile home parks across the country. And the thing about mobile homes is that they are an important piece of Wisconsin's affordable housing formula where the state needs more affordable housing options and mobile homes play a factor in that. But when people buy a mobile home, they don't always necessarily realize that they don't own the ground underneath it. They rent that. And despite the name mobile home, they are hard to move, costing upwards of $10,000. So you can see how get sort of this captive market where the property owner can add provisions to the lease or increase rents without much recourse for the residents. And since Impact has taken over the Blue Mountains community, rents 
have increased by an average of $80 a month, which for the residents on Social Security and other low-income residents of the park, that takes a big hit. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that, because as you mentioned, um, the residents of these mobile home communities only own the physical structure. The land underneath them is owned by, in this case, impact communities or whichever business or entity owns the actual park itself. So in a worst case scenario, how does eviction in these communities play out? Or if a resident does willingly choose to relocate, is that even a feasible solution? Yeah, Relocation, I mean, a lawyer I spoke with who covers northern Wisconsin, low-income residents in northern Wisconsin, has never had a client able to afford moving their mobile home. I heard someone put it, it can be as high as $25,000, which for a low-income resident is impossible. But even if you have that money to move it, you need a place to put it. And often that is a challenge to find a different park that's willing to accept your home. And then if you get all of that, you still risk things shifting in transit. You know, it's a, it's a one-story home, windows move, doors move, and then things are damaged. So that becomes a real challenge for people. And then if evic- an eviction is happening, in Wisconsin, certain mobile homes under a certain size are actually technically qualified as they're titled as vehicles, not homes. And so if you get evicted, you still own the home, you know, you're evicted from the land. And then if you can't move it, you have 30 days before it's considered abandoned property and it goes to the property owner. So you either have a fire sale in 30 days where you have to cut your losses and sell it for whatever you can get, or then it goes to the property owner who can resell it to someone or rent it to a new tenant. So you know, for lack of a better term, it's really a win-win for the property owner in that case. And it it does give them an outsized role in this relationship between what is essentially landlord and tenant. Yes, definitely. And it's sort of this gray area in tenant law where most of the state's established tenant law is directed at sort of what most people think of when they think of a renter and an apartment or a house that the landlord owns. Um, in fact, a lot of the tenant protections in the state will exclude lot rent explicitly. Last year, when Governor Evers established the Wisconsin Rental Assistance Program because people were needing help with rent during the pandemic, there was sort of a fight to get lot rents applied to that program because they initially weren't. When these mobile home parks get sold, do the residents have any say in that matter? Or can the land beneath them essentially get traded off from hand to hand without them really weighing in? Do they have any chance at all to veto a new owner if, let's say, they have a a checkered history of mistreating their residents? Not really. I mean, you're you're kind of stuck on the land. If it's going to get sold out beneath you, you're really limited to one option, which is forming some sort of tenants association or tenants union and trying to buy the property yourself and forming a co-op. There's a community in Barron County that has done that, but it's it's hard to get sort of that collective action going. You need someone who has access and the ability to help get loans and funding and, you know, for people who live in mobile home parks who aren't lawyers or, you know, fully versed in Wisconsin housing law, it's not necessarily easy to establish those things and take up this sort of David and Goliath fight. As you pointed out there, it is a bit of a David versus Goliath situation. And even if even if residents are able to organize into some form of co-op, 
Uh, the cards from a from a legal perspective are really stacked against them from the start. Tell me how this debate plays out in the state capitol building, where we should add a, a number of state lawmakers are also landlords. Yes, a number of them are landlords. The residents in Blue Mounds have sent letters explaining their situation to a number of lawmakers in state government and the state's congressional representatives. And Senator Janet Bewley told me that she feels like there could be room for finding some sort of protection for the residents of the state's mobile home parks. But the residents of the mobile home parks don't have a lobbying group, but the mobile home owner, the community, the property owners, and the manufacturers of mobile homes are a part of a lobbying group, the Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Housing Alliance donates to lawmakers, including a $500 donation to Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. They're in the Capitol pushing for rules and laws that benefit the property owners, which, you know, that's their job, but the homeowners themselves don't have anyone on their side pushing for protections of their own. So with that in mind, what's this look like across the state? Is the co-op model for for mobile home communities, is that sort of a one-off, a very rare situation? Is the trend increasingly going from, you know, mom and pop shops that own these lands and, and you know, may have a bit more stake in the in the lives of the people who live there? Or is it trending more towards, you know, in the case of uh, impact communities, property management, real estate management, what have you, organizations that are essentially hundreds, if not thousands of miles away? Where's the, I guess, the overall trend heading in mobile home communities across the state? It's trending away from the mom and pop ownership. For years, the owners often lived in the community themselves and then are, you know, accessible. They're right there. And some communities are being bought up by companies like Impact. Uh, They own four properties in just Dane County. But I've also found that there's sort of a middle between the local owner who lives on the property and the big company. There's sort of regional property management companies are also seeing that this is a market they want to be in and buying up mobile home parks around their communities. All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Henry Redman, a reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner. If you want to read his full write-up, it's available on the Examiner's website. That's just wisconsinexaminer.com. Henry, thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The 44th annual Willie Street Fair takes place this weekend. And in this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields takes us back to the fair of 2011, when along with the bubble car, the food vendors and live music, there was a giant open air garage sale, also known as Object Study Heaven. Mark Keenis has what some may call an unusual relationship with objects. Well, people ask me where I get it from, and I tell them it's coming at me, and if I don't duck quick enough, I own it. Mark is a big guy. His gray beard matches a thick head of hair, tamed by a blue baseball cap. We're standing outside the Wilmar Neighborhood Center in Madison, surrounded by over 300 chairs, tables, bookshelves, and bar stools, not to mention countless knickknacks, paperbacks, 
crafts, and who knows what occupying every available surface. A giant blue tarp hangs above the sidewalk, the street, and even the parking lot, protecting us from the hint of rain in the air. I'm new to the field of material culture, and one of the first essays I read cautioned against making judgments based on my personal relationship with objects. It's a hard lesson to learn. I was sure that Mark felt the same way about stuff as I did. I could care less about any of it. It's neat. I love watching it pass through. I don't want to own any of it more than a little bit, a little while. That's long enough. Because if I own it, then I can't own something else. I want to see everything. If I was going to do my life all over again, I'd never do it the same way twice because I want to see something I haven't seen. I want to be somewhere I haven't been. It's the same way for the stuff. I want it to be somewhere other than the dump. I want it to have another life. Things have three, four, six, eight, ten lives, if you, if you can just think about it. I mean, these, these golf balls are grommets on my tarp because they work better than grommets. People ask me what something is, I say, what do you want it to be? Because it doesn't matter what it was if it's at a garage sale. If it works for you to do what you want it to do, that's what it is now. What is it about an object that makes you want to give it a life outside of the moment that you have it, the moment that you cross it? It doesn't talk back to me. It doesn't treat me badly. It just is. It's it's inert. It's neutral. Well, and if we weren't doing this, these things would end up in a landfill. And the idea is if someone can use them, that's what should happen to them. That's Sam Miller. She says that she and Mark have been business partners for over 20 years. They hold this annual garage sale to support programming at the Wilmar Center. According to Mark, it's a partnership based on extraordinarily common ground. There was two things that I keep in my vehicle, and I never expected to see anybody else keep them in their vehicle, much less in the same place. One, I drive a stick shift, all right? I kept a roll of duct tape on the stick shift so I could always find the duct tape. And I also keep a pipe wrench underneath my seat. And she and I were both at the same auction once, and I was helping her load her vehicle, and I noticed that she had duct tape on her stick shift and a pipe wrench under her seat. And I'm like, wow. And that was it. (laughs) Sam is smiling in spite of the threatening storm. Dressed in layers to fend off the chill, her asymmetrical strawberry blonde locks fall gently to the collar of her overcoat. She says that what started as a hobby has turned into a second line of work, and her partnership with Mark has helped expand her business. However, she has to be careful not to keep more than she sells. There are things that I that I find that I really like and I end up living with for a while, but, but then sometimes I'll let them go as well. So they'll come and stay with me for a while, and then they'll go on and live somewhere else. The things that I need to have are my bib overalls, a canoe, a kayak, and my laptop computer so I can study the dictionary. And your popcorn bowl. Oh, and my popcorn bowl. I don't spend enough time in the canoe. I don't spend enough time in the kayak. I don't spend enough time studying dictionary. I don't spend enough time playing Scrabble. Therefore, anything else I can let go because the things that I value the most, I already don't spend enough time on. Both Sam and Mark agree that the items are priced to go and they're willing to haggle. Just don't push your luck. I had an object that I had multiples of, and this woman wanted it for a quarter, and it was on the dollar table, and I wouldn't give it to her. She kept coming back, and 
like got angry that I wouldn't give it to a recorder. And finally she said, my husband's a policeman. And I, you know, it's like, I could care less. This is a dollar. And if you won't pay a dollar, you can't have it. And I just dropped it. And it, she reached for it and missed it and it fell and it crashed. I said, well, all right, never mind. You can have it if you want it. Pick it up. It's yours. And I turned around and walked away. Mark says he's never done that before or since. And according to Sam, that's a good thing. Because after all, the reason it's here is for it to go. It's not here because we want it. It's here because we want it to be somewhere else. During my first semester as a student of material culture, one of my professors said that my new understanding of objects and our relationship to the stuff we keep near would forever change the way I see the world. She's right. Now that you've had a taste of object study, I wonder if the same rings true for you. For WORT, I'm Jonathan Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields and Tom Kamenick. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening and pledging. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to stay up to date with the WORT local newscast. You can subscribe it subscribe to it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. So coming up next at 7 p.m. is a live pledge drive edition of the Perpetual Notion Machine. We know you're a fan, so keep those pledges going. Good night. Thank you to Marcus and Stacy from that WORT News Hour. I'm coming at you one last time to ask you to donate to WORT. To call, donate at 608 608- 256-2001. The website to donate is wrtfm.org slash donate. Thank you to everyone who did donate. Um, that's uh, an IMA. We have an IMA that called in to donate, so thank you to IMA. And uh, if you haven't donated yet, your donation of any amount goes a long way to supporting this show, supporting um, us producers, uh, us staff at WRT, and just uh, the whole collective in general. WORTFM. Make that pledge, 608-256-2001 and wrtfm.org.